Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, everything is awesome! Not Griner. Although I think this podcast (laughs) needs to make the dark parody of that Everything is Awesome song. I don't think I've seen a dark parody version. Exactly, there you go. We need to like get our CGI skills and do the 443 Everything is Awful song. <laughs> Speaking of cynicism. Joining me is Corey Nockreiner. Can you remember the rest of the intro now that I've distracted you? <laughs> On today's episode, uh, we are diving into the latest internet security report from the WatchGuard Threat Lab. Um, and man, without further ado, let's go ahead and uh, flip a page on in. Flip a page? Yeah. That's pretty seamless, everyone. Did you see what Mark did? That He could be on broadcast TV. He didn't even waste a second. Today's episode... Sure did not. Just go. We'll do it live! <laughs> so this week, uh, we have another fun episode for you where we are going to go through the just-published Internet Security Report out of the WatchGuard Threat Lab. Uh, this report comes back from uh, Q2 2023, recognizing we're about three months exactly from the end of that quarter now. But still very relevant information for some of the trends that we've been seeing targeting mid-market organizations and the rest of our customers uh, over the course of that quarter. Um, before we jump into the actual stats, uh, I have to imagine that most of our listeners have heard one of these spiels before at some point. But just in case we got some new listeners since the last quarter, Corey, do you want to very quickly explain why we do the internet security report every quarter? Yeah, it can be simple and short. It's because we want to try to figure out what the bad guys are doing. I mean, it's really that simple. Quantifiable information. You know, we all read articles, we all hear stories, but those are just anecdotal. This is all about kind of the quantifiable information we get from products and hoping that we can analyze that, cut it up in different ways and honestly figure out what the bad guys are doing, if anything's changing, if new techniques are becoming more trendy, if old techniques are dropping off, or if the old techniques keep on going because bad guys like to repeat things. Either way, we want to know what they're doing so we can help you protect uh, yourself. I will say this one, like Q1 of last year, like we're really stirring up the pot in our data. The report comes from the same data from the same devices, which Mark will talk about with the Firebox feed, but we're changing the way we statistically analyze it. We're trying to get rid of outliers. So we did a little bit of that in our malware section last quarter, and this quarter we applied a lot of the kind of the removal of outliers. Uh, to get more statistical confidence on the data we have. But the result is a change in a lot of numbers and uh, inability for us to go back in history as much and compare because everything's kind of new. So it's exciting. You'll you'll see things change. And over the next few quarters, we'll start to build a history with these new numbers. Yeah, well said. So you mentioned the Firebox feed for those that haven't heard it before. Uh, The Firebox feed is just our name for our collection of threat intelligence that we get from WatchGuard customers that have opted into sharing it with us. Uh, Granted, mostly the network stuff, right? We we talk a lot about the Firebox feed, but there's some endpoint data in the report too. From the Firebox perspective though, uh, if you manage your own device under the general settings, there's an option to send device feedback to WatchGuard. 
that checkbox sends some telemetry about services that you have enabled um, and uh, services that you may be using that helps product management focus where their attention should go on the appliance. But it also allows that firebox to send back a report for every threat that it blocks from one of our signature services um, while it's up and running. And that includes everything from the three anti-malware engines, gateway antivirus, the signature-based one, intelligent AV, which uses machine learning. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to say AI now because that's what's important <laughs> in the industry. Uh, AI to predict whether a file is bad or good. Uh, and then the cloud sandboxing service, uh, APT Blocker. Uh, alongside those, we also get telemetry from the IPS engine, so looking for network attacks or attacks targeting network-connected applications, uh, as well as DNS Watch, so our DNS firewalling service that primarily protects against phishing, but as you'll see, can also catch malware, command and control, and botnet connections as well, too. That's all the Firebox feed, uh, so data strictly from the Fireboxes. Probably, what, a year and a half, two years ago now, we also added data from our endpoints uh, reporting in from AD360 and EPDR, where we can get this separate view of data of the threats that make it past or around the perimeter and onto the actual endpoint. Um, and for those of you that have either heard us talk about past reports or have read past reports yourself, you'll know that that view of perimeter data versus endpoint uh, threats can be quite a bit different. At the Firebox side, we see a lot of droppers and stagers and loaders, kind of that first step in the, uh, the attack chain or malware delivery chain. Whereas at the endpoint, we can potentially see a little further down the line and in some cases see the end payload that the threat was trying to deliver, like ransomware or a crypto miner or remote access Trojan. So with all that said, let's jump into some of the key takeaways from the malware section specifically of the Firebox feed. And first, some high-level stats that we uh, try to share every quarter. Uh, one of the things we track is just the overall volume of malware impacting fireboxes that are deployed around the world. This quarter, we saw 1,177 detections per appliance over the course of the quarter. So we normalize the data based off the number of devices reporting in to give us a little bit better of a, a view on trends over time versus just looking at raw detections like we used to. And this quarter was actually slightly uh, down overall from previous quarters. But when we look at the types of malware that we saw, there's actually some pretty drastic fluctuations. Uh, for example, uh, uh, threats detected by the signature-based gateway antivirus went up 41% to 516 per device, where threats detected by the last anti-malware chain, uh, anti-malware engine in the chain, APT blocker, we're down 52% over the quarter, uh, quarter over quarter. And then in the middle of those, Intelligent AV, the AI engine, uh, its volume of detections went up 113% quarter over quarter. So we're seeing a trend of both known malware, so signature-based detections going up, some of the more sophisticated detections kind of going down, but that can be explained a little bit by just how these engines sit in the, uh, the line of when a file goes through, which order. So IAV going up kind of explains where maybe we're catching more things with AI versus, and they don't even need to go to the sandbox-based detections overall. Corey? By the way, I'm thinking live here, but since we keep on stirring up the way we report, one of the numbers you're going to hear, it's different when we talk about encrypted traffic, but because of APT going down, 
our zero day number is an all-time low at an 11%. But this is hindsight 2020. It's already published, so we may have to adjust things. But I actually don't think that's right because to me, uh, zero day malware, just so you know, we're not talking about zero day exploits. We have to explain this every time. A lot of people think zero day as a brand new vulnerability, which they should, that's what it is. But when we talk about zero day malware, we mean malware that gets past basic signature protection, meaning GAV. But IAV, intelligent AV, or AI, or machine learning really, uh, AV is more sophisticated stuff that without signatures proactively catches stuff. So to me, the combination of APT and IAV is really zero-day malware with GAV being the signature base. So it's not a zero-day if a signature catches it, but if anything else catches it without a signature, including AI, uh, IAV, that probably is zero-day malware. But I believe we probably made the 11% number just based on APT blocker. Because uh, notice 158 versus an overall of, you know, 1,177. But if you add the 503 that IAV detected too, I actually think our zero-day number might be relatively normal compared to last quarter's. Yeah, I'd have to check Does with our analyst that wrote this section. I, I'm picking down what you're. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Uh, uh, I don't. That know, zero actually. day number just represents APT in in my opinion right now, which so maybe is not saying, the right choice. <laughs> uh, one of the numbers we track yeah. is we call it the zero day malware number, which is the percentage of malware that gets past signature based detections. And historically, we have based it off of the APT blocker engine and its relation to threats caught by it on appliances that are both licensed and configured to use it versus threats that are caught by just gateway antivirus itself. Um, so I I don't know. This is going to be a, a show notes. Let's go look it up later. But so the zero day malware number is actually at its lowest that we've ever seen it in the report this quarter. And it was at 11% like Corey said. Uh, that said, when we look at malware that arrives over an encrypted connection, that number goes up to 66%. And one of the stats we haven't gone over yet is that uh, we also take a look at the percentage of malware that arrives over an encrypted connection. And now we have to do this calculation based off of a smaller pool of devices because not uh, only I think like what 20% of uh, administrators that. have enabled HTTPS inspection on their fireboxes. It but looking at that, but that pool, seems to be what our analyst Trevor sees most of the time. Yep. Looking at that pool of devices, we found that 95.6% of all malware that we caught uh, came in over an encrypt a encrypted connection. Basically, what this means is if you're not doing HTTPS inspection at your perimeter, you're missing 95% of all the threats that are potentially going through it. That's a pretty substantial amount. While we stir the pot on our own data, something I've been talking about in other reports is my belief is because only 20% are from this doing encrypted traffic, most of the general trends you see in this report is a combination of encrypted and non-encrypted. And I actually strongly believe that, for instance, our, our top 10 malware, that's both encrypted and non-encrypted. And the majority of those trends come from non-encrypted. I personally believe that probably doesn't tell you, the reader, the real story. You should probably pay more attention to the top five malware that we see over encrypted because I, I think the real story for malware is happening in that encrypted data be, 
but because so few people turn it on so far, you're missing the real, you're not only missing the malware if you haven't turned it on, uh, but our report only has a limited view from the few that do see that encrypted traffic. So long story short, as you read this, I would say pay more attention to any trends we talk about when we're talking about it in TLS traffic or encrypted traffic, because that's probably where the majority of the actual action is happening. Yeah, I'm with you on that one for sure. Uh, now, we won't go into all of the individual threats that we highlight in the report, but there's a couple that I did want to chat about on this podcast. Um, first off, there were two Linux-based threats that we highlighted uh, that were pretty interesting. One of them, uh, brute forces its way onto servers that expose SSH access to the internet. And then once on those systems, it attempts to steal other uh, SSH keys or other credentials it can find and move laterally to form this botnet. Um, I thought this was a good example of why uh, you should, why even though SSH itself can be protected by authentication and some cases even multi-factor authentication, you know, it's encrypted versus the super old telnet. Uh, but even with all those protections, it's not a service that you want to expose directly to the internet, especially not on a unhardened system. Uh, the other Linux-based threat that was interesting uh, was a DDoS crypto miner uh, that's at least related to another variant called Lucifer. Uh, this one's pretty cool where it goes on, well, cool from a researcher perspective. One of the first things it does is it profiles the system uh, and then tries to disable any resources that might eat up CPU cycles on that host because its main goal is to spin up a Monero crypto miner and it wants to make sure that it can have all the resources possible in order to uh, mine the most cryptocurrency on that host. This is kind of interesting, though, because most crypto miners, they try and fly in under the radar and remain undetected as long as possible. Uh, but if you're going and killing processes of like Python scripts that are running or other yeah, services, I feel like detected. that's immediately going to let the... Yeah, the not very stealthy. Yeah. On the flip side, for those that kind of rack it and forget it, uh, this is a nasty one if you actually... I mean targeting Linux-based things means it's probably going after servers, which means this is probably most likely hitting something that has production processes that you want running on it. So having malware that literally kills the processes you want running on your servers is probably not great. But but to your point, I, I absolutely, if, if you run at it, hopefully you're not racking and forgetting your important production servers. Hopefully you have some monitoring going on and this one should probably light up a, a red light pretty darn quickly. I imagine so. Uh, so moving on, though, uh, for time's sake. Not, not if Mark admin some. I'm sure someone's already taken over his honeypot. And uh, put I'm kidding. I'm and, joking. <laughs> uh, you say that, but the uh, the capture the flag infrastructure that we maintain year over year, that crap has been held together with like magic and bubblegum for like <laughs> five years now. So to be fair, we only uh, have to pay attention to it for a, a month of the year. So it's easy to forget the rest I, of the time. I justify my ignorance on it uh, by the fact that it, it is literally a hacking competition. And so I just consider if you can own the whole thing, that's just bonus. bonus you won. Bonus. You won. Yeah, CTS. Exactly. There you go. You get the prize. Anyways, uh, so moving on to the network attack section. Uh, so we track uh, the volume of, of IPS detections quarter over quarter and year over year. And like Corey mentioned at the start of this episode, uh, we applied some of our uh, anomaly detection and outlier detection. Uh, to our statistical analysis of the network attacks this quarter, 
that we had previously added to the malware-based threats last quarter. What that means is if you look at it just quarter over quarter, the volume of network attacks dropped significantly, around 80%. Uh, this last quarter, we saw around 93 detections per firebox, which is still a, that's basically one a day uh, for each firebox out there of network attacks that the IPS engine blocked. Uh, we still see that, if you remember from previous reports, our top uh, network attack list is pretty top heavy, meaning the top 10 threats we see account for the overwhelming majority of just overall detections. Even with this new uh, outlier protections or outlier detection and analysis, we're still finding it's very top-heavy. So even with, when we pull out specific threats or specific destinations that have a high volume of detections, the overall spread of per signature, the number of detections we have overall was still similar ratios. Um, but anyways, uh, going into a few specific threats that we saw in there that stood out to me, uh, one of them that we highlighted in the report was a SQL injection attack against an open source learning management system called A-Tutor, which has effectively been abandoned since like 2019. Uh, and the reason this is and worth highlighting where? is Appendinware. There's a lot of open source software out there that becomes extremely popular, becomes widely downloaded, uh, lots of stars on GitHub. And then because it's open source and the authors aren't really making any money, maybe they move on to something else. Maybe they get sick of dealing with uh, all the bugs that their users send in and uh, without getting paid for it, they just lose their drive to maintain it and it becomes abandonware. And if it's only one person or a small team managing it and they ditch managing it, it doesn't stop people from downloading it. It just stops it from receiving security updates. Corey, anything you wanted to add on that one? No, I think you explained it well. No, I and I, 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 what I think is surprising is there's probably a lot of Linux packages out there that are used regularly. Sometimes maybe framework packages you don't realize that are probably technically abandoned. There's a lot more abandonware out there that is regularly used. And I think people know, at least in the open source Linux world, I think. it's uh, This example isn't abandonware, but uh, there's a extremely popular JavaScript library that just about every other library and most websites use. Um, it's designed to backport new features to be compatible with older web browsers that don't necessarily support that specific version of JavaScript so that you as a, like a web developer can use a function name from a new version and know it will work on every web browser. Uh, the, it's maintained by a single author and that author went to prison for about 11 months a few years ago. And <laughs> so during that time, window. <laughs> the package was totally unmaintained because they were the sole author. And it actually spawned this like discussion of like, what do, what do we do as a, an industry of software developers? If like, God forbid that person would like pass away, like, or they go to prison for even longer. Like how Plane do we, crash. <laughs> what's, yeah. What's our designated survivor uh, or rule of secession for taking over a package like that that's just massively used but owned by just a single dude. And it's a it's an unsolved issue still in the open source space. Like some like package libraries, uh, think like the pack, Python package index or the Node package index for uh, JavaScript-based libraries, they do have mechanisms in place now to yank back ownership of some packages and hand them off to someone else. But it's very ad hoc and thankfully only used in emergency cases. But man, 
uh, it, it, it is still a pretty gaping yeah. hole in, uh, in open source usage. By the way, we, we like open, open source. That doesn't mean don't use it, but the, the price you pay with open source isn't just having to figure out and maintain something that may not as, be as well documented and unless it's like an Apache product may not have support, but it, but it's this kind of thing. It's the calculation of that, that maintenance for it isn't just learning how to use a product that may not have been made for uh, a dummy more, more for an engineer, but it's all, all kinds of things like the maintainer disappearing and the expectation that if you want something new, uh, and the, the person maintaining it doesn't want to add it, you know, you might have to code your own stuff so, or, and, uh, maybe apply your own patches when they're in jail. So open source is good, but you got to make sure to calculate how much effort it is to support it when you use it. Turns out enterprise support contracts are typically worth the, uh, the expense. Yeah. That's where Apache foundation probably makes some money. Yep. Uh, speaking of Apache, one of the more widely exploited vulnerabilities we saw in this last quarter uh, was actually exploits of two or three Apache struts vulnerabilities from 2016 and 2017. I remember, maybe we didn't talk about it on the podcast, but I definitely wrote a post on Secplicity about these vulnerabilities when they came out, just because they were relatively trivial to exploit and widely used by a lot of applications on the internet. Um, and they are still kicking around as a potential target to this day, now seven and six and seven years later. And if you take a look at the network attack section, you'll notice that's a pretty common trend. There's a lot of vulnerabilities that are I mean, old, uh, to put it mildly, uh, that we're still seeing tools or attackers automatically try and exploit across the internet. Um, I, one other... Uh, uh, detection I want to highlight from this quarter. That was an interesting one where it wasn't a specific vulnerability in an application like the ones we typically talk about. It was actually a signature designed to catch a specific type of attack against a, a web application or a web server. Uh, so specifically, it's designed to catch a slow loris DDoS attack. And it showed up in our top 50 uh, by volume for the first time in quite a while. If you're not familiar with a slow loris DDoS attack, it's like the polar opposite of the extreme DDoS style attacks that you tend to see make the news these days where someone will use like a reflective amplification attack to just overwhelm a target with data, uh, typically abusing tools ranging from like DNS or what is it, memcached as a more extreme version where you can send a small request and get a giant response and throw it at some poor victim. A slow loris DDoS attack, instead, it's a low and slow style denial of service attack that allows it to sometimes evade some of the DDoS protections you might have in place that's looking just at like traffic volume. So specifically, it's an application layer attack where it works by opening and maintaining as many simultaneous HTTP connections as possible on that destination. Basically, your server, every time it... Um, gets a new connection, it spins up a new thread to handle that request. The expectation is it will close that thread when that request closes, or if it sits there without any activity, it'll time out and close it then. Well, with a slow Loris attack, the attacker will first off open as many of these connections as it can, so it creates as many threads as possible, and then it waits 
and just sends very slow but periodic keep alive messages to keep those connections open. So just long enough that the uh, web server doesn't time them out and close them, uh, but slow enough that it actually doesn't generate a lot of traffic load for the attacker to be able to do that. And the end result is the server is not able to kill off those connections because they're still active and it's not able to free up resources to ultimately handle new requests. And by the end of the day or by the end of this attack, uh, it's unable to uh, handle legitimate requests coming in. So we saw a signature designed to catch this type of attack show up in the top 50, and we chatted about it a bit more in the report. Definitely recommend checking it out. So moving on, though, uh, the last section in the Firebox feed. Before we move on, uh, this is yeah. like uh, inside baseball. I'm probably breaking the fourth wall and in talking about things we shouldn't in the making of this report. But to the H, I, I think something, uh, maybe Mark, you can tell me, uh, our IPS service works easily over HTTPS or non-HTTP, encryption and not encryption. If we can tell the difference, I think we need to expand our IPS section to include uh, top five or top 10 encrypted too. Because I'm curious in the same way that malware differs and when you're looking at encryption and especially sophisticated malware differs i think we agree that most of web traffic is encrypted now i have a feeling a lot of this old stuff we're kind of seeing on the non-encrypted web just being spammed out by bots and pen testing tools might change quite a bit if we actually looked at encrypted connections that yeah you know, i mean most of these are web application or web browser attacks and 90% of the time both of those will be over HTTPS. So is it possible for us to differentiate HTTPS IPS in the data we have? I am certain we can. Might be something we should look at. So don't know when we can promise it, listener, but we'll we'll try to add that to the report soon. Coming soon to a report near you. Meanwhile, uh, good Mark's idea, like, gosh darn it, now I have more work. That's why I asked him to on a podcast. Actually, speaking of which, why don't we just have ChatGPT write the whole thing and free up all of our resources? We ought to, man. Just We have all the data. It speaks pretty well. Who cares about them hallucinations? They're fine. <laughs> exactly. Anyways, uh, now moving on. The last section in the Firebox feed is all about DNS analysis. So looking at domains and connections to malicious domains that were blocked by the DNS firewalling service, DNS Watch. Uh, we break it down in the report into three main categories. So phishing domains, which as you might guess, are websites and domains associated with phishing campaigns. There's malware domains, which are websites and destinations associated with either delivering or command and control for malware-based threats. And then there's compromised websites, which are previously or still legitimate websites where a threat actor has exploited a vulnerability in that site to host something malicious in an attempt to prey off of their otherwise good reputation to do their bad activities. Um, so I won't go into everything, but uh, there were a couple I wanted to highlight. So there were several domains that were a part of a SEO poisoning attack. Basically, the threat actors were um, abusing search engine optimization to try and get these destinations to rank highly for something, uh, typically so they can then uh, show up at the top of a list for something you might be searching for, let's say like power tools, 
and in, rank them above the legitimate like DeWalt link. And instead you get a link for their phishing attack that might try and deliver malware. If you're trying to download, like, I don't know, I was going to say drivers for your tools, but you're not plugging power tools into your laptop. So poor example <laughs> in that case. Uh, but uh, we saw a few different domains that were abusing that to then try and host phishing campaigns. Most of them tried to compromise Microsoft 365 credentials. Um, so pretty much what we'd uh, expect out of that style of activity. The other one that's interesting, so we had multiple uh, websites that were WordPress blogs of varying sorts that had been compromised to either host malware or malware command and con control connections or even full-on phishing sites. Uh, one of them that stood out to me, it was a website. Uh, I'm, I'm picturing like a 60 or 70-year-old dude that just loves the LA Dodgers and set up this WordPress blog uh, all about the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team. Um, so like, like 90s style web design with lots of weird blinking under construction. If it's a 70 or 80 year old, me of an old like, yeah, GeoCities website. <laughs> yeah, there we go. GeoCities. That's exactly what I was saying. Anyways, keep going. Yeah. Is Dodger's um, but, site. So he's got a site with even up to date news on the LA Dodgers, uh, but someone has compromised it to host a phishing attack against Twitter users, where if you go to a unlinked uh, endpoint, or URI on that website, you get what looks like a Twitter feed uh, from 2014. In fact, it, it has a copyright from 2014. The first giveaway is that it still says Twitter and not X or whatever the heck that guy's named it these days. Um, but on the page, it's even got a forum to log into your Twitter account, which seemingly would most likely give up your credentials for the threat actor to go take it over. Um, so that was one example. There were a few others of them hosting just malware at different destinations. But I love this one just because the actual targeted website, the the victim in this case, was like it. You just get this perfect just mental image of who's actually maintaining yeah. it. Yeah, but just it makes you think of how easy dogs. sites can be compromised. Yeah, and this isn't to throw stones at WordPress. Like WordPress is actually very secure on its own. It's that. A lot of the plugins that you have in it have to have fairly elevated privileges within the WordPress operating system or something. ecosystem. Yeah. And if you don't keep those updated, uh, it can easily open up things like remote code execution issues that can let someone gain access to the underlying web server in this case. Just because we have some uh, historical, uh, I would say WordPress itself isn't perfect. They're good at keeping stuff secure. But if you're, you know, I hate to say go to the cloud for everything, but if you're considering a WordPress anything, I, I found I preferred WordPress hosted, like the default where your site is they hosted in their cloud versus, I mean, if you're a control freak and want to install whatever darn plugin you want and have full admin control of your site, you can get on your own version of a WordPress that you spin up on a server. But the issue there is WordPress itself does have vulnerabilities and then that leaves it on you for patching. And I found that if you do WordPress hosted, they limit the plugins. So maybe you don't have quite as much power, but because of that one, when WordPress knows something, it's fixed in the cloud immediately, even though you might have to wait a few weeks for the actual on-premise patch. And two, the, their whole point of limiting the plugins is actually to limit the risk of what can happen in their hosted cloud because they feel more liable for that. 
So if you're going to play with WordPress, besides like what Mark said, be careful more about the plugins and make sure to update those. Maybe consider hosted if you don't have a lot of time to maintain and secure things yourself. Absolutely. Um, so that was the end of the Firebox feed. Again, we go into much more detail in the report itself um, for specific types of threats and some additional stats. Um, I but, will say for DNS uh, analysis, by the way, last week we talked, you know, one of your things was that SEO poisoning. Uh, we talked about chat GPT or, or Bing, I'm sorry, Bing uh, AI malvertising. Uh, I hate to say it, but that could probably be blocked by DNS watch. So uh, the good news is if you go to Bing and get some bad ads served to you and your users click them, maybe we can help block those too. Just wanted yeah. to shout out last week's topic. Great callback, Corey. Uh, that'll help our SEO if we link back to that episode as well, too. Um, anyways. Because I so have that on. malware planted, I'm trying to get a few more victims. So please go visit our Seclicity links. That is exactly it. This is all just a ruse uh, to maintain job security and sell more WatchGuard. <laughs> no, don't say that. out. Someone just believed that. That's going to now be quoted out of context and read it, and there's going to be a whole new conspiracy about it. There's no such thing as bad press, Corey. That's true, uh, I guess. <laughs> Until you get indicted a hundred times. Yeah, no thanks. Uh, moving on uh, to the endpoint section, where we take a look at, instead of at the perimeter, down at the actual endpoint for threats that EBDR or AD360 blocked on devices. Uh, first and foremost, when it comes to just total malware volume at the endpoint, it was down about 8%. Um, at the endpoint, so remember, you're typically behind multiple layers of protection, so it's rarer for a malware threat to make it to the endpoint. So instead of looking per endpoint, we look at per 1,000 endpoints for our stats, and we found around 981 attacks per 1,000 machines over the course of the quarter, which is still pretty dang close to about one per machine over the course of yeah. the quarter, which is, man, in my opinion, when you think about that, that's one too many. I would say rare, by the way, that and that malware hits endpoints, rare with a new caveat. I, I guess it still is rare with host-based firewalls, but we definitely think it's rare in a traditional situation where you have a network firebox and most of your endpoints are at the office behind the firebox. Because to your point, Mark, the malware is often caught by the network before it even gets to the point where something's on the endpoint. I do think you got for this one, just be aware that probably 50% at least of these endpoints are just probably roaming around the world in home networks. I guess they still probably have some network thing there, but uh, I don't trust other people's networks. So I, the reason you want that endpoint malware is for when it's not behind your lovely configured firebox because then it may not be quite as rare for it to hit the endpoint. Yep, agreed. Um, so even though total volume was down, uh, we actually saw an interesting shift in how widespread malware attacks were that reached the endpoint. So in the report, we break down um, the volume of detections we have based off of the number of machines that were affected. So we bucket them into, for example, uh, threats that only impacted one single machine, or 2 to 5, 5 to 10, 10 to 50, 50 to 100, and 100 or more. And this quarter, compared to last quarter, on the upper end of that, so threats that impacted, let's say, 100 or more machines, or 50 to 100, we saw that grow over the quarter. So the number of threats that impacted 10 to 50 machines was up 22%, and those that impacted 100 or more was up 21.5%. 
So even though vo malware volumes down, they are in general impacting more machines uh, this quarter than the previous one. Uh, when we look at specific malware threats, the number one overall in uh, volume, bless you, uh, was uh, <laughs> one that you might expect from uh, this last quarter. So if you remember, it was, I think, the very end of March, like the very last week of March, uh, there was a pretty widely impacting software supply chain attack involving 3CX, uh, the the mobile, or not mobile phone, the VoIP uh, Voice technology. Over IP. Yeah. So it was at the very end of Q1, but it bled over into Q2. And at no surprise, uh, the top malware detection we had for the course of Q2 uh, was that trojanized version of the 3CX application. Um, some of the other threats that we call out in the report, uh, Gloopteba was a botnet that Google and law enforcement helped take down back in 2021, uh, but actually made a resurgence in quarter two of this year. We saw it uh, show up in the top 10 list. Uh, and then another one I wanted to highlight that we've talked about at the perimeter in previous reports in the Firebox feed, uh, but I think it's the first time we chatted about it at the endpoint, uh, was a downloader designed to go and grab the uh, remote access, the free remote access tool, uh, Amy Admin. So this is technically a legitimate software. Think of it like a GoToMeeting or like GoToMyPC kind of software where it can allow someone to remote in um, and manage it. Uh, but this downloader, it's a malicious application designed to go and grab this legitimate software so a threat actor can then gain remote access to your computer. Um, and we've seen this at the perimeter. We've seen downloaders that when we go look at the rest of the attack chain during our analysis, you found that it's downloading this. Uh, but this is one of the first times we've seen it or at least talked about it at the endpoint too. Um, when it comes to the top pups or potentially unwanted programs, uh, the number one overall was a generic signature or detection family designed to catch cracked versions of Microsoft Office. That was number one by a pretty substantial margin as well, too. Um, so unfortunately, folks that have EPDR or AD360 installed on the networks, some of their users are going and downloading cracked versions of Office. And while that, I mean, first off, it's illegal, so don't do it. While it may save you a little bit of money, these cracked versions of applications tend to come with malware or adware or unwanted guests along with them, too. Uh, I, I mean, this is entirely anecdotal. I remember from my childhood, every other CD key or CD cracker I would get off of LimeWire was just totally laced with malware. Um, I feel very bad for my parents that I feel like my dad definitely got his money's worth with whatever anti-malware engine he installed on that computer back in the day. Not um, that I would know but, from being in a, a, a person in college that was grayish. Uh, but I, I, I remember liking some of when the finally you could have uh, pirate forms, which would actually kind of have a crowd uh, sourced grade or review of the different things to help weed out the actual plain key gen versus the one that's been had all kinds of crap added to it. Crowdsourcing sometimes is useful because, yes, you're right. I would useful. say 80% of them came with something extra and it was actually hard to find the group's original non-touched one. Even the, uh, the comments on a website that I've only heard of and never visited myself called the pirate Bay, uh, what did a that? great job of huh. calling out, uh, they must different like Roman scurvy. 
exactly. Uh, isn't the the founder of that in is he in hiding or is he in prison? I don't remember. I don't know. So uh, many people have taken it over the past decade to keep it going. I, I have no clue where it stands as far as its original founders. <laughs> yeah, but not that I've ever been there, but I've heard some friends of mine tell me that the comments on there at least were a good like smoke test of just how bad a potential file would be. Yeah. Um, but then you're potentially dealing with misinformation and people gaslighting you trying to convince you that it's clean when in hey, reality it's like straight up remote Maybe we have a prediction, a new prediction. AI social engineering will be, AI will be used to kind of automate comment generation to help social engineer people. I guarantee that's already happening. I have a feeling that half the people on Reddit are just bots at this point. I'm pretty sure that's the only quote unquote election fraud that was happening is fake comments on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter posts. Yeah. Oh, hey, good news. We have another one of those coming up here soon. Hooray. <laughs> Our uh, poor freaking listeners, man. Anyways, we enjoy our cynicism. Hopefully, you do too. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is awful. Uh, so, continuing with the pups, there were several in there that are just straight up adware downloaders. Uh, and then there was another one that showed up. I think it was number 10 where it was a signature or a detection family designed to catch effectively third-party driver packs. Now think of like, you know, you go to set up your new Dell computer and instead of going to the actual dell.com to download the drivers, you Google drivers for my Dell laptop and you end up on one of these shady websites where they might deliver you the legitimate driver applications and they might deliver you them plus other crap. Uh, that sort of uh, detection was showing up, I think at number 10 in the uh, the top potentially unwanted programs for this quarter. Uh, one of the other things we track every quarter is the attack vectors. So what was that initial like uh, exploit or attack technique that they use in order to initiate that malware uh, event on the endpoint? And if you remember from previous quarters, uh, scripts have always been the number one uh, for uh, quarter over quarter for that actual vector for getting a threat on the endpoint. It's typically around 90 to 95% of the threats we saw uh, started with a script. In this quarter, that's actually down to about 74% of all malware originate with a script, which is still massive and substantial, uh, but it's down from previous quarters. And taking up its place was a category that we just call Windows, uh, which is around 17%. But this includes basically any application or program that's built into the Windows operating system. You can think of it like WMI, Windows Management Instructions, or PS Exec. So it's still a category of living off the land, uh, but not scripts specifically. So I think if we were to bucket them together quarter over quarter, it's still around 90 to 95% of threats are abusing living off the land techniques to kick off that our uh, infection on the host. But this time, the, the ratio of scripting, like PowerShell, versus some of these built-in programs like WMI or PS Exec uh, changed a little bit, uh, which was interesting to see. And then rounding out the endpoint section, we look at uh, our favorite type of threat, and that is ransomware, because no one under the sun is sick of talking about hearing or being <laughs> the victim of ransomware by now. Uh, but uh, one of, we still track some. Hopefully, you're just things. sick of hearing about it. I would. It, it would suck if you're sick of being the victim because that would mean you'd been the victim multiple times. Once is <laughs> enough. 
Once is I, too much. I can guarantee we've got a, a substantial amount of uh, partners or managed service providers here that, you know, have that one customer or that one class of customer that just will not listen to your advice and ends up being re-victimized. So I bet there's at least a few people here that are sick of dealing with ransomware. Victims, <laughs> Probably. Uh, anyway, some of the things we track are just overall ransomware volume, which was actually down. Uh, but we, when we look at the types of ransomware and specifically the categories, like those that use double extortion, that actually increased this quarter. Um, we looked at a few specific new families that joined up as well, too, um, and highlight how they've been uh, some of their types of extortions and who they've been impacting. I think it's about a dozen or so notable ransomware breaches that we list out explicitly in the report. Definitely recommend checking it out, but we'll skip going into each of them individually just for time's sake. Um, so I guess speaking of, let's we always wrap up the reports with a not just scaring you with all the data uh, that we've seen from impacting customers, but we try and give you some, you know, good defensive takeaways to take back to your organization, at least at a high level. Uh, to defend against the landscape. And Corey, I guess, do you want to start with the first one of our defensive highlights from this quarter? Since I'm pretty sure you wrote these. Did I? Oh, I can't remember. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, I, I, I love the alliteration on abandon, abandonware. Uh, you know, me and Mark talked about this. If you're using a project that's not being maintained anymore, you, you better learn to code yourself if you really insist on using it. Uh, every day that it's not being maintained is a chance that someone finds a vulnerability that's not being fixed. So you just have to really be careful with any any software you're using, even if you love it, that's out of date. We're not trying to push people to force you to always upgrade to the next thing because that's not always uh, necessary. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, I am a tech nerd, so I do get uh, early adopter FOMO if I don't. But old stuff is fine, too, as long as it's maintained. But just make sure it's not being abandoned and it's getting security patches. Uh, the next one is all about hardening your Linux servers. So uh, like we mentioned earlier in the malware section, uh, there were several threats that were impacting specifically Linux systems, and especially those that had services like SSH, remote access, uh, exposed to the internet. Um, so I mean, the unfortunate reality is, you know, you can get malware on any system, even Mac OS. And sometimes some of the non-Windows-based systems are underprotected. And Linux can be one of those, uh, either from the protection standpoint or the visibility standpoint. So make sure that you spend time hardening your Linux systems, removing unnecessary services, uh, enabling strong authentication for those that you do still have in place, making sure you limit network access to them as well, and preferably stick it behind a VPN and don't expose it to the internet if you don't absolutely have to. Some of the similar techniques that you would apply to a Windows-based system or just any system in general absolutely do need to be uh, applied to a Linux-based one because they are under attack. Corey, you want to end up with the, the final takeaway? Sure. And the last one is just keep looking at your defenses with a new perspective. I, I guess this goes along with us stirring the pot in our data. We're trying to look at our data in a new perspective to try and kind of find uh, new trends and what threat actors are doing or maybe things that were missed because they were hiding under the, the radar of big outliers that was the, the noise to signal ratio. But in the same way, you should 
you know, you probably have some defenses you set up years ago that seem fine, but maybe you haven't taken a look at them for a long time. Uh, maybe some of your policies are out of date. Maybe you, you've added some rules long ago to do something, and then that whole project is now gone, and you have these rules allowing things that don't even exist anymore. Who knows what it is? But just remember to take the time, even if you have defenses in place, to go back and look at it. And consider what you really need, what you don't need, how you can downsize policies. Do you have administrative accounts, the privileged uh, service accounts that you set up for something that are no longer needed? Whatever that thing is, make sure to always go back and look at your defenses with the new perspective. Hopefully the new perspective you're getting from the data we share in a report like this Internet Security Report every quarter. Yeah. So, man, that's a wrap for this one. Again, you can see the report at watchguard.com slash security report if you want to download the entire 39-page uh, document or just the one-and-a-half-page executive that's a heck kind of short one it is, compared man. to some. We've had 50. <laughs> and good news, uh, Q3 just ended, and we grabbed our stats, so it's time to get cracking on the next one, I suppose. Yay man. for us. More work. More work. But hey, and you know I just what? I added things to add to the report. I do too. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. CSO. I, I appreciate the the delegated tasks that you keep kicking down. <laughs> hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter or X. Uh, I, I'm never going to get that correct, ever. Uh, I'm at X-O-R-R-O <laughs> underscore. Corey's at second up. The both of us are at hashtag. X-O-R-R-O underscore is on X. Sorry. Yes. I That's talk over people. my own name, so it doesn't really matter anyways. <laughs> Who needs hashtag to find at sec at it? The 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening. You will hear from us next week. Sorry about that. And the Peace week after. out. And the week after. <laughs> <laughs>